Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Talking Hockey Sense. It's episode 56 of the podcast, and we've got a lot to get to today. So much so that I don't even have a guest. It's just going to be me and you and this camera that I'm talking to or the earbuds that I'm talking to you through. And that's how we're going to do it today. I got a lot of great questions from listeners, which we're going to get to a little bit later. There's a few things I want to get through uh, based on this season, but we're going to talk a lot about prospects today. We're talking about the NHL draft. We're talking about college hockey starting. We're talking about junior hockey, and we're answering your questions because NHL teams are about to make their cuts, their final cuts for the season, and some players will be going back to junior. Some players will be going to the AHL. Some players will be going to the ECHL. So a lot of different things happen over this next couple of weeks here, which is why I thought, hey, let's get together. Let's just kind of roll through this and give you as much update as I can based on the things that I've been hearing and the different things that I'm talking about with scouts and others. So a lot to get to, a lot of exciting stuff happening throughout the season. Um, we'll talk a little bit about you know the college hockey starting, which I think has been uh, really exciting, and it was a really interesting weekend uh, to start the college hockey season. Not all the teams in action, but we'll get to that in just a second. So before we do get to that, just want to remind you that we're part of the Flow Sports Podcast Network. You can watch every episode of Talking Hockey Sense on flowhockey.tv, and you can listen wherever you get your podcast. So if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice, download it, uh, share it. Also, it really helps us a ton to get the word out. If you continue to leave kind ratings and reviews, we've gotten some great ones over the last few uh, year, the year and a half that we've been doing this podcast and want to keep making uh, great content for you. So allow us to, to get our, our word out to more and more people. And that'll just help us a whole bunch uh, as we get rolling here. But, you know, as I said, a lot to get, a lot to get to today. Um, so we're going to start with the college hockey season and that's starting here. And um, of course, you can watch the CCHA Atlantic Hockey on Flow Hockey uh, throughout the season. We've got those games. A lot of good matchups that we had over the weekend. Actually, the first CCHA conference games between Bowling Green and Northern Michigan. Some really intense uh, conference battles to kick off the season there. Those were a lot of fun to watch. Um, but, you know, there was also a lot of surprises, a lot of upsets and different things. And if there's one lesson I can teach you, dear listener or viewer, it's the results in October for the first two to three weeks of the season pay no mind to them. They are irrelevant. <laughs> I know it sounds weird to say they matter because a lot of these games, some of them are exhibitions and some of them do count like several of the games that were played over this past weekend. But it's really difficult to learn anything about a team in the first few weeks. The way college hockey works they don't get the long preseason that NHL teams do. They don't get a bunch of exhibition games to get warmed up for the season. They just kind of go. And there were a few teams, and, and now the NCAA allows you to schedule exhibition games against fellow Division I teams. Um, teams are still bringing in Canadian universities uh, for, uh, from U Sports up in Canada to play in exhibitions as well. A lot of them will play the national under-18 team. Um, we saw Denver actually played UNLV, which is an ACHA team, so college club hockey. So a lot of really cool, uh, you know, opportunities for for different teams to come play Division One schools. So uh, a lot there in, in terms of uh, of of what you can potentially learn about a team. But again, without that long runway to start the season, these teams are just basically getting started, and so. We're seeing them make a lot of the mistakes. We're seeing the goalies aren't quite ready. We're seeing all those different things. You know, Western Michigan, which is a top 15 team in the country, 
went up to Alaska Anchorage, a program that, that didn't play last season, and then managed to salvage a split up there. Um, and, you know, does that mean that that's what the Broncos are going to be throughout the season? Does that mean that the Seawolves are going to be better than we thought? Those are the questions we start to ask ourselves in week one, and we shouldn't because it really doesn't work that way. We don't get to see the real true uh, ability of a team typically till about November. That's usually when. I know it's not ideal to see that, but at the same time, that's what it is. So, you know, as I looked across the country, there were a lot of real games, games that were were played and 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 counted. Um, and one of those was a series between UConn and Vermont, and was really interested to see because those are two teams that have actually built themselves very similarly. Um, you know, you've got Mike Cavanaugh at UConn, who's been there for a long time, has established kind of his his recruiting footprint. And they've had guys like Tage Thompson, who are American and 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 you know, a high profile recruit, but they've built a lot of their team through Europe, getting players that are available in the European countries. And Vermont is following now a similar model where where uh Todd Woodcroft is recruiting a lot of European players. And part of that is because those universities have um, capabilities to, to allow those students to become eligible, to, to make sure that they have all the proper academics uh, to, to get into the school, but they also uh, have a lot of support for international students at those universities. So it makes it more attractive for those players to come over there. But th it was fascinating to see. UConn ended up getting the sweep, and they have also attracted one of the top recruits in the country. And this is really one of the key factors of, of Mike Cavanaugh is that you know he's been able to find those right players that can fit into UConn and really boost their status as a program. They've been more competitive. I still want, I'm still not sure if they're going to be, you know, a top tier team, but the expectations are very high. And a lot of that has to do with their top recruit, Matthew Wood, who very well could be a top 15, maybe even a top 10 pick in the upcoming NHL draft. And he started his collegiate career out with a bang. Two goals, uh, scored the, the opening goal in each of the two games against Vermont and also had an assist. He was the top scorer in the BCHL last season, had one of the best draft seasons by a BCHL player in their draft minus one season, um, you know, in terms of points per game. The only guy who was better was Kent Johnson, who, of course, went fifth overall. He ended up playing at the University of Michigan for two seasons, and now he's a member of the Columbus Blue Jackets, likely to play a full-time role in the NHL this season. So really fascinating stuff, you know, to see a guy like Matthew Wood coming from British Columbia all the way over to UConn. So he's going across the continent. Uh, and and manages to go so far from home, but he also is the youngest player in college hockey. He is he is accelerated. He is he should be a high school senior right now. He's a 2005 born player. This is a guy you have to get to know. I did write about all the draft eligibles in college hockey on FullHockey.tv. So Matthew Wood figures very prominently in that. You can learn more about his historic level of production at the BCHL level, leading the league in scoring last season. You can also learn about guys like Adam Fantilli, who plays for Michigan, debuted as the number one center for that team um, in their exhibition game. They did have some injuries, so we'll see how that lineup uh, kind of fans out. Uh, Charlie Stramel, who is a big center for the University of Wisconsin, they also played an exhibition game, actually lost their exhibition game to Lakehead uh, from, from Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, and then also uh, Gavin Brindley, who plays at Mi Michigan as well, has a chance to sneak into the first round. He's not as big of a lock as the other guys because those three guys I just mentioned are massive uh, forwards. You know, guys that are six foot two or higher um, with some some real strength and and some some opportunities to to you know kind of be that power forward that so many NHL teams are looking for. 
This weekend also marked the debut of Logan Cooley, who is the highest drafted player in college hockey this season at third overall to the Arizona Coyotes. He scored two goals and added an assist in his first collegiate game. Minnesota played Lindenwood, and this is Lindenwood's first year in college hockey. So we got to see Logan Cooley playing his first collegiate game against a team playing their first ever game at Division I, and Minnesota ended up winning that first game 4 nothing. The next night, it was 6-4. Lindenwood actually were tied going into the third period with Minnesota, and then the Gophers were able to pull away late. So pretty impressive showing by Lindenwood in their first ever weekend, and that team is uh, basically transitioned from ACHA. They were the 2022 ACHA National Champion, so club hockey going to Division One. A lot of new players, same head coach, Rick Zombo, who uh, played in the NHL and also has been part of that Lindenwood program for years. And I actually remember when I was at Iowa State, Lindenwood was a new club hockey team back then. And we were like, what are these guys all about? And, cert and certainly they were very competitive at the very beginning. And now uh, they're at the Division I level. But getting back to Logan Cooley was no surprise to see him produce. He ended up having four points over the weekend. He's going to be a guy that I think very well could contend for the Hobie Baker this year. We're going to talk about some Hobie hopefuls in a little bit. But it's very difficult for freshmen to win the Hobie Baker, but if he, if he manages to have a historic freshman season like we've seen Al Connor have, or if we see uh, a guy by the name of Jack Eichel, the the, the Hobie Baker season that he had um, with over seventy points, and you know that's what it takes for a freshman to win the Hobie Baker. But I think that Logan Cooley is going to be an offensive driver for Minnesota this season, and he's going to be fascinating to watch. So Logan Cooley and Matthew Wood making really splashy NCAA debuts. And you can also say the same for a bunch of guys from Boston University. They had an 8-2 win over Bentley. Um, Lane Hudson, who was a defenseman drafted by the Montreal Canadiens in the second round. One of my personal favorite players from the last draft. I thought he should have been a first rounder. Three assists in his first game. Um, and then you got to see a lot of other guys. Ryan Green, a Chicago Blackhawks draft pick, also had three points in that game. You had uh, uh, Devin Kaplan with two points from the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, uh, Jeremy Wilmer, who's undrafted, uh, but he had three points in his first game. So Boston University is a team that feels like they are going to take a step this year uh, under new head coach Jay Pandolfo, but it's going to be the young guys leading the way. And then they have a great goaltender in Drew Camesso. Um, and so that's basically if BU can find a way to be that good of a team with that young a team, you know, they're going to take that step. I don't think they're going to contend for a national championship this year unless Drew Camesso plays out of his mind, which he's fully capable of doing. Um, but I, I just personally don't think that, that, that having that young of a team is really a recipe for success. You got to hold on to some of those players. You got to hope that some of those guys stick around for two, three, four years in order to be competitive. But I think Jay Pandolfo getting his first win as the head coach at BU uh, in an 8-2 fashion with, with the freshman leading the way has to be encouraging for Boston University. Um, there were some big upsets too, and some of them, you know, they're, they're, some of them were exhibition games, others were games accounted, but, you know, Sacred Heart uh, had, a, had a big win over the weekend. So they're, they're a team that's gonna make a lot of noises here. Brad Schlossman and I talked about it last week. And, and as a reminder, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, Brad Schlossman and I went conference by conference. We went through a lot of different teams, a lot of different players to talk about the different things that, that we think are gonna happen this college hockey season. Um, so make sure you go back and check that out. But Sacred Heart um, came out and, and you know had had a great uh, a great run. Holy Cross beat Boston College. I mean, there were a lot of good games um, that that were played out there. Uh, Sacred Heart beat UMass. Sorry, I mean, I'm I'm skipping over who they even played. 
you know, those are two teams uh, from Atlanta hockey that managed to have, you know, big uh, program inspiring kind of starts to their season, uh, which helps a lot. And it doesn't matter if the games don't count, they count to the players when they're playing them because they don't get so many games in a season. So even those exhibition games are played really competitively. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, you know, and there were a couple other teams that lost some of their exhibition games. We mentioned Wisconsin, uh, Michigan State, and Notre Dame both lost to the national under-18 team, which uh, is now 6-0 and to start the season. The U18s playing in a, in a split schedule with the colleges and, and the USHL and a bunch. We're actually going to have a couple of their college games on hockey TV. Uh, you'll be able to see those uh, when, uh, when the U.S. under-18 team welcomes a series of college opponents to USA Hockey Arena in Plymouth, Michigan. But they've gotten off to a great start, and that's a team that's full of 17-year-olds beating college teams. So, uh, you know, not it's not a knock on Michigan State or Notre Dame that they lost to that team because it is a good team. They've beaten a lot more D1 teams over the years. But, you know, those are two teams. Uh, I think Michigan State's looking to take a step under Adam Nightingale. Notre Dame looking to continue. You know, they've, they're always around it. They're, they're always hanging around. Um, you know, it's kind of resting on what the goaltending is going to look like. Ryan Bischel is going to be the go-to guy for them this season. And then you've got, you know, a really good, talented team led by guys like Landon Slaggart and Ryder Ralston who have been, you know, around the program for a few years. So Notre Dame is one of those dark horse teams. They're always around it. Uh, you know, it's just, can they get the goaltending? Can they get the goal scoring? And that's been a big question. So uh, those are some of the things that, that we've kind of seen around. And as I mentioned, that BGSU, uh, Bowling Green, Northern Michigan game, I actually watched overtime last night um, between those two teams. A.J. Vanderbeck, who's one of the top scorers returning this year, won it for Northern Michigan to uh, to get that series uh, even there uh, on home ice. And uh, a lot of great games there. I also saw Michigan Tech, Lake Superior State, you know, just really entertaining hockey uh, played throughout the country in all the different conferences. And you can see a good portion of it on Flow Hockey. All right, one thing that I did write about that I wanted to get to really quickly as well is the Hobie Baker. Uh, and this is an interesting field this year. There are three players that were part of the Hobie Top 10 last year that have returned. The rest of the Hobie Top 10 either graduated or turned pro. But you've got you know some really good players in there. Luke Hughes is probably the guy that a lot of people are looking at. Now, Luke Hughes did not play in Michigan's first exhibition game. I have a feeling if it was a regular season game, he would have played. But he got hurt at the World Junior Championship. And he only just recently started skating again. So I think we'll see him when the games start to count. But that's a guy where he had one of the best freshman seasons you can have for a defenseman. He scored 17 goals last year. If he has a, a season similar to what he did last year and maybe you know that Kale McCarr-esque season that we talked about with Brad Schlossman last week, it's kind of what you need as a defenseman. But three of the last six Hobie winners have been offensive-minded defensemen. And I think Luke Hughes very well fits into that mold. It's just a matter of will he put up the points? Will Michigan have the team success in order for him to kind of come away with it? So we'll have to wait and see there. Uh, but there's also Devin Levi, who I personally would have been my pick for the Hobie Baker. Um, he's one of the guys that I think really could make a difference. Northeastern is uh, looking to be a team that takes a step. They look, they're looking to be competitive. I'm still not sure they got the defense to do it, but Devin Levi is the goaltender that can really steal you a game, a series, a month, a year, it feels like, the way that he played last season. He had this tied for the second highest save percentage in the history of college hockey last season. Did not win the OB Baker. Another goaltender did, Dren McKay, who, of course, plays for, played for Minnesota State and now has moved on to pro hockey. But Devin Levi, after not getting even into the Hobie top three last year, looked for him to be a big factor. 
He's also going to have some competition on his own team. Aiden McDonough is one of the guys that I'm really looking forward to seeing for Northeastern this season. He's an outstanding goal scorer. He's a big forward. He can make a lot of plays. And he's taken steps year after year to get better and better. So Vancouver Canucks prospect, he has the option. If he doesn't sign with the Canucks this year, he can certainly go uh, and explore free agency. That's an option for him. He said that, you know, that's not necessarily his plan, but you never really know what those situations, but I think Aiden McDonough is absolutely going to be in that hunt. And then, as I mentioned before, Logan Cooley, to be a freshman, you got to have a special season. I think Logan Cooley is one of those guys that has the capability to, to have that special season, to be a guy that can, can make so many things happen and can drive an offense for a team that I think has a chance to win the national championship this year. I mean, Minnesota, they had their struggles in their night two game against Lindenwood where they didn't quite look themselves, but then Brock Faber goes ahead and takes over. And, you know, that's a guy that, that is going to be um, kind of one of those dark horse candidates for the Hobie. I don't think he's going to put up enough points to win the Hobie, but he's probably one of the most important players to his team in the country. And the amount of minutes that he plays, the way that he plays, Brock Faber is going to be a guy to watch in that hunt as well. But I think Logan Cooley is probably best position. And I know I got some, some heard from some Maple Leafs fans. What about Matthew Nyes? Absolutely. I mean, I think he's in the hunt too. I just think that Cooley might be the offensive driver of that team a bit more, even as a true freshman. We'll have to wait and see kind of where that all shakes out. But you can check out my entire preseason Hobie top 10 list on flowhockey.tv. A lot of thoughts on a lot of different players and also included a bunch of dark horses, guys like Carter Mazur, who we talked about last week. I think Mike Benning is another real interesting one uh, from the University of Denver. I didn't list him, but I think Drew Camesso from BU, if he does have that big season, you know, the Chicago Blackhawks prospect absolutely can get into that hunt. So uh, it's a wide open field. We got a great group of college hockey players this year, but a lot left uh, to get to. Uh, so yeah, a lot, a lot of season left. And, and of course, we're looking forward to all of it. Also wanted to do a quick check-in with the USHL. Of course, watch all USHL games on Flow Hockey as well. Exclusive home of, of the USHL. And there were a lot of good ones. I actually went to, to a game on Saturday. I saw Cedar Rapids play the U.S. National Under-17 team. And after beating the U-17s 8-3, the 8-2, I think, the night before, um, it was 8-3. And then the, the Rough Riders came back, and, and, and or the U-17s, rather, came back, and they won their game. And so now USA Hockey, with their national team development program, and if you don't know, they're both their under-18 and their U-17 team both play in the league. They count as one. Uh, in the standings, the U-17s will play the bulk of the USHL games, while the U.S. Uh, under-18s will probably play somewhere around 25 or so. And um, so the U-17s end up getting them. There are only three teams with three or two teams with three wins um, in the USHL through the first two weeks of the season. One of them is Team USA, and that's because the U-17s came back and got a big win. Um, it's very rare for them to be able to win early in the season. But this is a very interesting team. There are several guys, 2006-born players on that team that are absolutely worth watching throughout the season, um, many of them. I mean, you look, there, you can kind of go up and down the list. But two guys that really stood out in that game, number one was James Higgins, who had uh, three points. He's probably the top uncommitted recruit in the country right now in terms of 2006-born players. So he's a guy that I think a lot of schools are looking at. He's a New York native. You know, I, I don't know what his plans are in terms of who's talking to him and, and, and where he's going to go. But this is one of those guys where, you know, I've talked to a lot of different scouts that said, hey, this U-17 team's got a lot of special players, but this guy might be the best of the bunch in James Hagen. So keep an eye on him because he is a really interesting player. He had three points in that game. I certainly see what the hype is about. 
Also, big-time goal scorer Cole Iserman, uh, committed to Minnesota. He's a Massachusetts-born player committing to Minnesota. It's not something you see very often, but he's a high-end goal scorer who played at Shattuck St. Mary's um, and now is with the U-17 team. He scored a beautiful goal that came out of the net so fast the refs actually thought it hit the post. They go back and review it. They count the goal. He has an unbelievable release. The shot is heavy and accurate. Um, you know, he had a couple of odd man breaks as well. He's good shooting off the pass. So that is another name to know. So Cole Eiserman and James Higgins really stood out there. Also in the USHL, the Chicago Steel, they look like they're back to their old ways. Uh, you know, they've won some games. They've, they're the other team that's won three games so far. Nick Moldenauer, the Toronto Maple Leafs draft pick, already with five points this season. He seems dialed in, locked in, ready to go. And he's a really strong player. For them and, and with the extra year of experience that he has that's a guy that i think really could make a difference um you know for that team this season They've, they're getting the goaltending they also have jack harvey who has five points uh, max celebrini has been injured didn't play last weekend he's the top 2006 born for them um so you know we'll have to kind of watch and see where the chicago steel goal but uh, go but a, a very good start to their season also got to give a, a quick look at the, the leading scorer of the league. Samuel Harris is second-year player for the Sioux Falls Stampede. Sioux Falls won their game last weekend. He now has six points to lead the USHL. Five of those points are goals. He has goals in each of his three games so far this season. Samuel Harris, uh, you know, very, very strong young player there. He's got an opportunity to, to have a big season. And, and certainly Sioux Falls is a team that is looking to bounce back from last year. Um, we've got some great content uh, coming your way about the Sioux Falls Stampede very soon on Flow Hockey. So stay tuned for that because uh, we, we spent out some time with them at the USHL Fall Classic. And, you know, not only do they have guys like that, they, they have veteran players. They have players like Maddox Fleming, who's produced pretty well so far. Um, you know, they've got a, a pretty solid decor and, they, and they've got one of the top draft prospects in the USHL, Maxine Sturback, um, who is a big right shot defenseman that just looks like he is ready to go, um, you know, tailor-made for, for the NHL. So uh, very intrigued by, uh, by what they're building there in Sioux Falls. Meanwhile, there's, uh, there were a couple of games canceled last weekend. Unfortunately, Tri-Cities had some ice issues uh, where they've had to uh, uh, cancel their, their, their games, but that's another team that's going to be difficult to slow down. They were supposed to play Omaha last week and didn't see it, but that's going to be a team that absolutely, uh, you know, as of last, last year, won the Anderson Cup, and then they go into the Fall Classic and, and have some success right away. Um, but, you know, they've had to spend their preseason traveling uh, to get to uh, a, a practice rink about an hour and a half away. And that's that's something that happens. You know, some things are beyond your control when you have issues with ice or, you know, there's a facility problem. And then you just kind of have to make do. So, but it's not the ideal circumstance uh, for those teams. So it's all, all the more impressive that they played so well at the Fall Classic. As I uh, have to take a sip of coffee here, because if I just keep talking, I might choke on my own words here. All right, so that's my quick look in at the USHL as well, because I, I mean, I'm I, you know, being around the league as much as I have been over the years, I'm excited about this season because I think there's a lot of things to look forward to. There are some really good draft prospects throughout the league, and there's a really good second layer, those guys that are coming soon, the, 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 the 2004 or 2006-born players that are you know, 16-year-olds, two years out from their drafts, uh, their draft year, and they're finding a way to, to make an impact on their teams at a very young age, which is really one of the things that I find most fascinating about the USHL is when the young players find a way to make a significant impact. And we're seeing that already this season. We actually have a question about that a little bit later, which I'm going to get to 
when we get to our Q&A section. And we're almost there, I promise, because I know there are a lot of great questions that I had um, from readers. But looking at what else we've got going on here, um, I wanted to talk a bit about the 2023 draft. Um, draft rankings for me are not out yet. They will be out mid-month um, for uh, on Flow Hockey, uh, where I do my top 32 at the start of the season. I usually try to wait a little bit, get a couple games in, um, in addition to what I've seen over the summer uh, with these players. And and one of the things that we've talked a lot about this 2023 draft is how big a year it's going to be for the WHL. Connor Bedard's the number one guy, but now we've gotten about, you know, some of these guys have played three, four, five games in the WHL this season. Um, Connor Bedard was held off the score sheet in his first game. Total bust. You got to just write him off. Forget about it. It's all, oh, no, no, never mind. Over the next four games, he scored nine points. Um, that's what Connor Bedard does. He is an outstanding player. He's going to score in bunches. He's going to, you know, he, he's not going to be elite every single game, but he's going to be pretty close. And to have nine points to lead the WHL in scoring at this early stage of the season, a good sign of things to come. But he's not the only guy really producing. There's actually been a lot of draft eligible players that have made significant impacts. Now, you have to remember NHL teams have a lot of players that are in their camps. They're trying to decide, hey, do we keep this guy? Is he ready for the NHL? So it allows some of these younger players better opportunities. But for these draft eligible guys, this is kind of what we expected anyway, because they are so good. So beyond Connor Bedard, Andrew Cristal from the Kelowna Rockets, on fire to start the season. Seven points through his first three games. Had four assists um, this weekend against Prince George. He's shifty. He's not a big guy, but he's got a lot of skill. Really like what he brings to the table. Zach Benson, six points through four games for Winnipeg. Expectations are high. He's one of the elite playmakers of the WHL. Um, you know, he and, and, and also have Braden Yeager from Moose Jaw. He has six and four as well. You know, those are guys that we expect to have big seasons. And so far, they're, they're living up to it. So out in the WHL, there's a lot of talent. Um, and, and we're looking forward to tracking it all season long. And, and definitely stay tuned for those, those draft rankings. But also, you know, looking at it a little bit closer to home, and the, the, we talked a little bit about the national under eighteen team. They got they're now six and zero to start the season. One of the guys really driving that force for the U eighteens is Will Smith. We've talked about him before on this podcast. He is uh, committed to Boston College. He is a very shifty, quick player, high end skill. Currently averaging two points a game. Uh, he's got points in every game the NTDP has played this season. He's been among their offensive drivers. He's a guy that I think will, you know, continue to rise up draft boards with his dynamic play. He's not a big guy. I think that's probably the, you know, the, the one thing that's holding back. He, he's, he needs to fill out more. Um, but beyond that, the, the speed, the, the skill, you know, his ability to, to, to score. Um, and now, you know, with 12 points over the first six games, Really impressive start to his season. So that's a guy that's getting on radars and staying on them and moving up uh, the boards as well. And lastly, I already talked about him, but Matthew Wood, having such a strong start to his collegiate season, I think the big question for, for Wood was, he's the youngest player in college hockey. How is he going to transition from the BCHL to the NCAA? Not just the NCAA, but Hockey East, which can be a very difficult conference to play in. Also playing for UConn, which has kind of been a mid-table uh, you know, kind of team where you know they, they, they can be competitive, but are they going to hang with the big teams of this league? And I think so far we're starting to see 
you know, they, they played Vermont and Vermont's still a team that's in the rebuilding process as well. Um, and they managed to pull out two wins and Matthew Wood was a driving force in that. What really strikes me is, you know, he's already playing on the top power play. He's already getting that, that opportunity. His, his shot is outstanding. He's got the size. He's, you know, he's not, uh, he doesn't have that burst in his skating that I think is one of the things that might hold him back a little bit, but to see him read plays as well as he does, he's always in the right spot. He just finds a way to get to the right place. And that's when, if you say, okay, well, I, I'm not quite sure about the skating. That's one of those things that will, the hockey sense can erase that. And it can, it doesn't completely erase it, but it, it says, Hey, it's not as big of a deal. If I think this player has great anticipation skills, if he can get to the right place at the right time, if he can make an impact when he gets there. And that's what Matthew Wood has done so far for UConn. It's only two games, but to see him produce right away is huge. All right. Now we go to our Q&A. And before I do that, one more sip of coffee, just to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go for this. Because uh, if there's one thing I know about Talking Hockey Sense listeners, it's that they always bring thought-provoking questions, things that I'm excited to talk about, and things that maybe I didn't think about for the podcast. This is the secret of the Q&A. You guys are making the content for me. I, I know, I'm supposed to be the senior content creator. I'm supposed to have all the answers. Um, well, I hopefully have the answers to your questions, but I certainly really appreciate it when you guys make me think about things a little bit differently. Um, so I'm gonna take my, my deep breath, my sip, and get ready for what I assume will be very thought-provoking and very intense, uh, and a very intense line of questioning. So hold, please. All right, I think I'm ready. All right, we're gonna move on to our questions. Our first one comes from good friend of the podcast and a longtime uh, hockey guy, Kirk Ludicky. And Kirk asks, how impressed were you with the 2024 draft eligibles at the USHL Fall Classic? Kirk, I'm so glad you asked because there are a lot of good players in the USHL that are two years out from their draft. So they're not going to be draft eligible this season. It's next season. Some of those players will move on to college hockey or other leagues. Sometimes they, a lot of them are going to stay in the USHL for the following season. And you get to learn a lot about those players over the course. And, you know, as I look at the different, uh, you know, I think there are at this point 37 skaters that have played that are in their draft minus one season. So we, when I say draft minus one, it means, you know, I, this is their, you know, if they're draft eligible in 2023, this is their draft season. If they're draft eligible in draft in 2024, it's draft minus one. Um, and so, you know, there, there are a number of players that I, that I thought really stood out in the fall classic and also through the first couple weeks of the season here. And, you know, I think it starts with two guys that everybody expected to be really strong um, in, in this league. And that's Max Celebrini and Sasha Boyver. Um, You know, two guys, both Canadian, both coming to the USHL, despite having really good opportunities to play, you know, Canadian junior hockey. They chose the college route. They felt it was better for them. So that's why they're, they're in the USHL and they've already made an impact. Both of them had three points over their first couple of games of the season. Celebrini got injured in his second game, but that's a guy where I think, you know, think about some of the players that have played their draft minus one season in the USHL. We're, we're talking Andre Svechnikov, Owen Power, Adam Fantilli, 
Um, you know, there, there are a num- number of players. I, I even think back to Kyle Connor in his first USHL season, already able to make an impact. Celebrini looks like he's going to be in that mix. And same with Sasha Boyver, who is, you know, he's got the size and strength of, of a player that's a bit older than he is. You know, 16, it's very difficult for a player to have the strength and physicality that they can then hold up against the USHL. Those are two guys that I think absolutely do have that. Um, you know, another guy, and, and Kirk will know him very well, is Artem Levshunov. Uh, you know, you've got a Belarusian player playing in Muskegon, uh, or sorry, in, in Green Bay. Um, you know, you're you're coming to a new league. You're coming through. Uh, you're trying to make way. Already has two goals through his first four games in the USHL, and this is a defenseman. You know, I think that he's got the maturity. He's got the ability to move pucks. He's got all those things that you need to be a defenseman and, uh, and have some success. But it's very difficult to do that in this league. Another guy that really stood out to me at the fall classic in particular was Keith McKinnis, defenseman for uh, the Waterloo Blackhawks. I actually wrote him up uh, as one of the players that stood out to me because I didn't know anything about him coming into the fall classic. You know, I, I, I try to stay on top of things, but it's impossible to know every player. Um, the only thing I knew about Keith McKinnis is that he was committed to North Dakota at 16. So, you know, like that's, that's a, you know, that's a, a pretty, pretty interesting fact about a player when you see them and they're 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 that young and and they make that college commitment but you know i i would say that uh with with uh with mckinnis he's got size he's got poise um he wasn't overwhelmed by the speed of the league and that's the thing that can really stand out for, for these players how do they hold up against everything moves faster um you know i was talking to uh some of the guys from uh, the national team development program after their game against Cedar Rapids. And those players were talking about it's so much faster. You know, they were playing in U17 and U15 last year. And, and those are good levels of hockey in the United States. But when you're playing against your peers, you have more time, you have more space, you have a little bit more. It doesn't happen in the USHL. It's really where these young players, they have to, you know, it's kind of a sink or swim situation. Uh, but, you know, those are some of the guys from the 2024 class that really stood out to me. But, I mean, you look at the U17 team after seeing them uh, the other night, you know, you've got a league that's got a lot of good young players that are still a couple years out from their draft, and I think that only makes the USHL stronger um, when they're there. So great question from Kirk, and and I think I'm really excited to see, you know, the USHL young guys continue to have this impact. I think that for a lot of scouts talking to him, it's like, you know, as exciting as – following this year's draft classes, there's a, lot of, there, there's a lot of excitement about following next year's as well. And so I think that comes with a lot of these guys here. So really excited to see kind of what, what all ends up happening with that group. All right. Next one comes from at Borst Matt. Got to see the USNTDP play Notre Dame tonight in South Bend. What is your take on Will Vogt and Oliver Moore? They both stood out to me tonight. Well, certainly no surprise, uh, Matt, to see that those two guys stood out. I think Oliver Moore is the kind of player that will always stand out because he's just quick and he wins puck battles, he wins races, he wins, uh, and then he's got skill on top of that. I think his speed and his explosiveness are two things that make him very difficult to play against. So he's a guy that I think is on track to be a first-round draft pick in this this year's draft. He's not – not everybody feels that way. I think there's – you know questions about size and, you know, does he have the, 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 the jam to get in there as well? Um, you know, I think he does. 
I think he's going to be a player that in this class, you know, his speed is one of the things that really stands out to me and his, his ability to play with pace and to make plays at speed. As for Will Vote, he's got a bit of a taller hill to climb because he is undersized, but he is a player that has good skill level and he's going to make some plays. And, um, you know, Vote is c- committed to, uh, to Boston College. He's going to be a guy that, you know, he, he's got a longer tail developmentally, so you're not going to necessarily – feel like you have to rush him. He's absolutely a draft for me. It's just a matter of where does he go. Um, I don't think he's in that first round hunt yet. Um, you know, will he get there? It's it's going to be tough. This is a very strong draft class, especially up front. But it's also, you know, you look at this draft class, it's not a big class. Some of the best players in this class are undersized. Connor Bedard, Matt Vimichkov. I mean, you know, those are the guys that that are everybody's looking at. And you guys Guys like Cristal, Benson, you know, they're, they're, they're not big guys. So um, it allows some of those younger, the, those smaller players. And I think that size doesn't matter as much in the NHL, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, it, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. You can't just say, oh, he's, so you got to be, you can't just be big and play. No, that's not how it works. You got to be, and, and you can't just be small and skilled and expect it'll work. So you know, I think certain kinds of players, certain size profiles, scouts are definitely more in tune to. Uh, but yeah, you're going to have to kind of see where where Will Vote's going to go this season. You know, he hasn't had the numbers of some of the other guys on his team so far. But I mean, it's no surprise that, that these guys have have stood out against the college teams. They're very good players. They're this this under 18 team is good. It might not have as the number of first round draft prospects that you see in a normal uh, NTDP year. Or not really. I mean. There, there are plenty of years like that, but you know, last year was pretty strong. This year probably won't be uh, as strong, but those are two guys that, that make a lot of sense that you'd like. All right, let's get to our, our next question here. This one comes from at Tortilla Big. Frequent question of the podcast and always love the question that he brings. I have two questions if that's okay, and of course it is. First, I know it's early, but are there a few of the top defensive prospects you see? Who are the few... Top defensive prospects you see coming in the 2023 draft. And second, what players stood out to you at the USHL Fall Classic two weeks ago? All right. So um, kind of answered the last, the second question uh, a bit last week. And also um, you can read on, on fullhockey.tv. I have a, a big piece that just details all the players that I thought really stood out. Um, I've, I've been on record saying I think Michael Robble had one of the, you know, the best Fall Classics of any player just because he's a six foot six goalie that, Stopped a lot of pucks, you know, stopped 70 or 73 shots. That's uh, nothing to sneeze at. We didn't get to see his, his, his uh, encore presentation because he was in one of those games that was canceled. But Harabal is one of those guys um, that is going to be a big-time player in this draft. And he really made a great first impression at the Fall Classic. So that's another thing that I'm really uh, excited to track because I think he's an interesting player. Um, aside from that, the top defensive prospects this year, um, uh, it is an interesting year because I think that this is going to be a forward-dominant draft in a way, at least early on, it's too early to say, a forward-dominant draft um, in that you know I think that there's a chance we don't see a defenseman go for a while in the first round. Um, that's not to say there aren't good defensemen in here because there are. I, I, I've said it before, I think Cam Allen is one of the best defensemen in this draft. Playing for the Guelph Storm, he's got a lot of the tools that you look for in the modern defenseman. And we're actually going to talk about that in a little bit because there's another question coming up about the modern defenseman. And 
know, I think that he he has the the, the mobility, the skating, and the the vision to be you know an impact defenseman. It's just a matter of does he impact the game as much as some of these high end forwards do? Um, and that's the question the teams are going to have to ask themselves as we get to the draft. It's too early to say. You know, I mean, we're, there's a lot that we have to still kind of figure out about this class. But you know, he's one of those guys that we're absolutely going to look at um, and say, hey, you know, he he's he's got a chance to be special. Um, you know, I think some of the other some of the other guys I, I mentioned it before, but Maxime Sturback is is a defenseman that is getting on the radar in a greater way. Um, he is uh, probably. Uh, you know, at this point, I would say he he's trending towards late first. Um, he is, uh, you know, I, I I have a lot of time for him. Um, I think that he is, you know, as he gets a kind of into this game a little bit more, um, into the USHL, you know, what, some of the things I need to see from him a little bit better than I've seen so far, and it's early, it's only a few games into the season, is an ability to really close off the net. He's so big. He's got, you know, he's got strength. He's got some, some good balance. I just want to see him make sure that, that if you're a defenseman um, and you are, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a young defenseman, you're playing the game with a much more aggressive and confident way in a confident way. I need you to, you know, I want to see you um, dominate physically. I want to see you try and win those board battles. So as he does that, I think the rest of his game is kind of already there. He's very smooth. He's got good puck moving ability. He's got size. He's got, you know, really good intelligence. And, you know, he's, he's we don't see many guys like that, that, you know, that are Slovakian born that are going to go uh, the college route and he's committed to the university of Vermont. Um, you know, we'll have to see that that's going to be really fascinating to watch, but I think the other guy that is a bit of a wild card in this draft and, you know, I wouldn't put stir back ahead of him. I have, a, you know, he's behind him, but Mikhail Gulayev um, is probably one of the defensemen that a lot of people believe could be the top defenseman in this class. I think it's between him and Cam Allen for me personally at this point, you know, that could change throughout the season. Um, but Gulayev is, um, you know, he's five foot ten defenseman, but he's playing in the KHL. Um, you know, or he's he's gotten some he's gotten seven games in the KHL so far this season. Um, you know, the max amount of minutes that he's played so far is thirteen thirty four. So for a young defenseman to play, and it's playing for a good team in Omsk, um, for him to play that number of minutes in a KHL game already at this stage of the season is very impressive. Whether that will continue remains to be seen. It's always difficult to know how KHL teams are going to work with defense, but he's also been uh, put in the U20 league a little bit, put in the VHL, which is the second division pro in in Russia. But then there's also the Russian factor. We've, we're going to talk about it with Matthew Michkov. We've got to talk about it with Gulayev. Um, you know, I think that he is, uh, the reason that he's so highly regarded is so many people got to see him be a dominant player at the Halinka Gretzky Cup two years ago. Um, you know, that was uh, an impressive showing for him where he had five points in that tournament and, and Russia was very good. But now we're not going to see him at things like the World Juniors, or the Under-18 Worlds. They didn't play at the Holinki Gretzky Cup this year. There's not as many ways to see this Russian team. Um, so you have to go off of how he's doing the KHL. And I think in general, you're looking at 
a guy that can play that number of minutes. He's got one assist in seven games. You're not going to expect a ton of points from him there, but he is an offensive defenseman. Um, you know, that's where you're going to have to kind of just hope that we get good enough viewings. And also, you know, I think with the Russian players, there's just a, a real moral dilemma in terms of how to handle that whole situation. I know there are people out there that would say, you know, if you draft a Russian player, you're not being sensitive to what's going on in the world. Um, but I mean, these are you know teenagers that have no say in any of that. And it's also, yes, they're playing in the KHL, which a lot of people are going to say, Hey, that's uh, you know, isn't that a, you know, basically a, a sports washing of, of what's going on right now. And that's kind of what it's existed to do. Um, and I guess that's valid, but at the same time, I mean, it is valid. But at the same time, you know, when it comes to these specific players, these individuals like Gulayev and and uh, and Michkov and players that, you know, are hoping to to have an opportunity to play in the NHL one day, you know, I think that you know, teams are are largely still sticking by that they're they are individuals and they're not representatives of their country essentially, um, which is still kind of a, a tough situation. It's you, you have to remember, I mean, these guys are 16, 17, 18 years old. So it's a lot. It's a lot to put on them uh, at this point, but we'll see how teams feel about them going forward. All right, our next question. We're going to get into some NHL prospect talk here. Um, at Michigan Longgrad asks, can you give a player comparison for Marco Casper's ceiling as a player? Taves, Larkin, Bergeron? Um, so, <laughs> you know, obviously when we have players like that um when we're talking you know Jonathan Taves and Patrice Bergeron who have won Selkie trophies and Dylan Larkin who's a very good two-way center um you know I as I watch Marco Casper play and he's currently playing in Sweden um uh for Rogla you know I don't necessarily see comparisons like that I you know I think that you know, I think Taves is is close you know I mean I think that the style of play that he has the size the skill level I think, you know, he probably is in that mold. I don't know if I can tell you with confidence that he's going to have the same type of career that Jonathan Taves had. Um, I think any player that we start, like, I, I just think Patrice Bergeron should be off the table for comparisons forever. There were people comparing Shane Wright to Patrice Bergeron. I never once saw that. It's just, it's become shorthand for defensive, good, good defensive forward. And Marco Casper was the way better defensive forward in the last draft um, and probably more uh, deserving of that comparison. But it's still not a comparison that I would ever make because we're talking about one of the greatest defensive forwards in the history of hockey. And so what I think Marco Casper is going to be is he's going to be more than likely a long-term number two guy with the potential to become a number one center I think he's more of a number two. He's going to play your tough matchups. He's going to play all those different things. He's going to be on your PK and your power play. He's got the skill level to do whatever you need him to do. He's probably a guy that's going to wear a letter for your team down the road. You know, is he going to be the heir to, to, to Dylan Larkin as a captain one day? He very well could be. Um, one of the things that has always stood out to me about Marco Casper is watching him at the World Championship last year. He's 17 years old, and he is absolutely dictating everything that his team is doing on the ice. Not just during play, but between whistles. He's he's barking at his teammates. He's letting them know, here, I want you here. This is what we have to do. And he and they're listening. They're listening to him. 
Um, and seeing that and seeing the maturity of, of Marco Casper and seeing the, the way that he plays the game, the ferociousness that he plays with, the competitiveness that he plays with, um, it's really inspiring. And so I think that Taves-esque is fair, but I don't want to, you know, I, I think that we, we get in trouble with those comparisons because, you know, I, I'm not saying he's going to be captain of a three-time Stanley Cup team, an MVP of an Olympics, a two-time gold medalist. Like, I mean, there's so many. You're, obviously, those awards are not going to be attainable for everybody. Um, and that's not the only metric. But I mean, you know, I, I can't even tell you with certainty that I think Marco Casper is going to win a Selkie trophy in his career. I mean, you know, I, I don't think anybody can. But what I do think is that the Detroit Red Wings got the right kind of player for the direction that they're going as a team. That's probably the best thing I can say about Marco Casper. All right, next one comes from at Hockey Mindset. And these, this question is, what are your thoughts on Brant Clark? Do you see him making the Kings this year? And if not, will he stagnate in the OHL this season on a weaker Barry team? Hmm. All right. Well, that's a good question because I think Brant Clark has played well enough in the preseason and through the rookie tournament to have warranted a at least some games at the NHL level. And I think he's going to get some. Um, if the Kings send him back by the time this podcast comes out, uh, oh well. But at the same time, I think that Brent Clark is doing the things that he does best, and he's doing them against NHL competition. That's a really good thing. Um, the thing about Brent Clark that still is a hang-up for me is I, I think that defensively, he's not there yet. Um, and with the puck on his stick, there are a few defensemen that are better than he is. There are a few defensemen that, that can move and, and, and make the plays that he does. That said, you need to be more than that at the NHL level. And I just don't think he's a strong enough defender or a strong enough skater at this point to defend at an NHL level. Um, whether or not that is uh, an opinion that's also held by the Kings, um, I can't tell you, but I will say that 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 he is a guy that <clears throat> excuse me, uh, he is a guy that will continue to improve. But if he does go back to junior, this is one thing you, you know. You mentioned the word stagnate in junior. There are very, 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 very few players that can go back to junior and stagnate. There is always going to be something for them to work on and something that it is better for them to work on there than it is at other levels. The NHL is not a good development league. It is a good play league. You got to play now. It is, it is very hard for players to get better and better. Now, I will say that being challenged is part of development. Playing up a level. It's like why, you know, the National Team Development Program, it's part of their whole philosophy is we're going to have 16-year-olds play a team full of 16-year-olds play in the USHL. We're going to have a team full of 17-year-olds play against college teams. And that can work for some players, but on a case-by-case -case basis. Going to the best league in the world is a tough place to, to learn because it's in a results-oriented business. It's all that other things. There are teams that are at different stages in their, their organization where they're, hey, we're not competing for the playoffs. We are trying to look into the future and get there. And the Kings are one of those teams that are like, we can make the playoffs. We can be a competitive team. Are they a, a Stanley Cup contender yet? I don't think so. But are they 
do they have the ability to make the playoffs? And they do. And and because of that, it's hard to get a guy like Brent Clark and also a coach like Todd McClellan say, hey, we need you to play our 20, you know, our, our 19 year old defenseman um, more because we need to get him better. Um, you go, if you send him back to Barry, and yes, Barry has struggled and it's been a tough place to play. But if you go there, you still have an opportunity to uh, to learn and to get better and to do the things that, that I think Brent Clark needs to do as a player in order to um, be a good NHL player. I think he's close. He's getting there. He's better than he was last year he's, at this time. He's going to be better. You know, Give him the opportunity to go back to junior. He'll play probably for Canada at the World, World Juniors this year. That'll be a great experience for him. He'll be a leader. He'll be a guy that, you know, you need uh, for Barry to be competitive. And he needs to work on his defensive game. He simply does. It's still there. I've seen it at, at every step of the way for him. And it's going to be one of those things where it, it, it has to be corrected. We've, there have been a lot of great defensemen, offensive defensemen, that stagnated after they get left junior. And because there wasn't a place for them to, to do the things that they did and get better. So I think that... For Brant Clark in particular, he's the kind of player that I would prefer be, um, you know, challenge at the junior level than play at the NHL level and just kind of get by. Um, so I don't think he'll stagnate. I think that if the Kings want to hold on to him for a while, give him a taste of the NHL and then send him back, that might be the best path forward for him. But there's no question in my mind that Brant Clark has played well enough this season to at least warrant that, you know, nine game look or however many game look the Kings want to give him um, because that's, that's where, you know, he's going to continue to get better. And, and then I just think that junior is probably the right place for him at this point, but we'll see if the Kings agree. All right. Our next question comes from at Rackham's revenge. And this one is, will all the prospects in Rochester translate to AHL wins? Kozak and Rusek are late round picks that seem to be outperforming their draft position for the Sabres, but do either of them have the ceiling above the fourth line in the NHL? This is a good question because it's about the AHL in terms of competing. And I think if you are a fan of an AHL team, you always want your team to compete for Calder Cups. Unfortunately, because of the way things are set up there and because of the way that, that you know, every team is absolutely competing to win. Every team wants to have that opportunity to be uh, the, the Calder Cup winners. But at the same time, the primary focus of teams at the AHL level continues to be player development. And so I think when you have a lot of prospects, when you have a lot of young players on an AHL team, it is very, very difficult to be competitive. That said, you, you if you can get those guys at various stages, and then you can surround them with players. And, and Rochester has guys like Michael Mersch and um, you know players that that are going to be able to be veteran players that support those young guys that don't make them have to do everything to be competitive. So you have a guy like Mike Mersch or Sean Malone, um, you know that allows the different players like Rusek and others that they can play their game a little bit more, and they're not completely relied upon to do everything. That's a good thing. Um, so I can't say like it's the AHL is, is such a, a fickle league in terms of competitiveness and who competes. And you know, I look back at the Ontario reign and they had you know, the, the Kings had the best prospect system in hockey. Um, they had guys like Quentin Byfield playing Arthur Kaliev. 
uh, Kale Clegg. They had um, who's now with Rochester. Um, you know, they've they had other you know young guys that were at various stages of development. It was hard for them to compete for championships with that. But I think if you're the Buffalo Sabers, you're putting a huge amount of emphasis on Rochester as a place not only where young players are going to get better. But I think you also want to get them in a situation where they are going to win, where they're going to have tastes of success because Buffalo hasn't had that. They need more players that have had that taste in their mouths of that success and they have, have competed for championships and have done the things. And I think one of the big hires that they made was getting Seth Appert, who has turned out to be a guy that can compete and develop at the same time, which is something that he's done at the collegiate level and also at the NTDP where he was. So you have a good coach there that, that understands that dynamic. Um, at the same time, the Sabres are going to have so many good young players there. So you got to give them the ice time. You got to give them the opportunity. You got to let them play. Um, and then hopefully you hope that they're good enough to help you compete. So, um, and then it, and to answer the second part of that question as well, um, you know, I think that, you know, for Kozak and Rusek, you know, like, yeah, the, when you see AHL production and guys going up, you know, you, you have to take it all a little bit of it with a grain of salt. I think those are guys that are more likely depth players. Um, you know, there are always guys that can kind of pop up and, and, and develop even better. And you, you get a lot there. But, you know, I think that those guys are, um, you know, probably depth. And, and it's, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes. You know, sometimes those guys that, that are depth players at the AHL level all of a sudden find their offensive game and Turn it into something completely different. The other thing that happens is sometimes you send a guy from the AHL to the NHL, and all of a sudden he's playing with better players, and his game just flourishes. Um, and that's why it's important at the AHL level to have guys like Michael Mersh, who is going to, you know, was the captain and 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 can score at that level and has had success at that level, because those are the guys that know what they're doing. It allows those young guys the opportunity, like. Michael Mersh is going to be there when, when Alexander Kisikov is going to try to give him a pass, you know, like that's the thing where, you know, whereas maybe a young guy doesn't know that that's the spot he's supposed to be in. So experience matters at the AHL level. And that's part of what, you know, it's the same in college hockey, you know, older teams are going to tend to compete more. And if you have, you know, fewer prospects, sometimes it actually helps your team's competitiveness. But I think in, in this case, the Sabres have made a really concerted effort to make Rochester, not only a good development route, but a competitive team as well. All right, next question comes from at Gene Parmesan 9, private investigator Gene Parmesan. Was it surprising to see Mike Milne start in the AHL? How common is it for overagers to play in the AHL versus juniors? Okay, good question because Mike Milne is, is a player that you know has the ability to play in the AHL after playing um, junior hockey. He's a 2002-born player. Um, he had... Uh, four seasons uh, in the WHL. Uh, of course, 2020-21 was a shortened season because of the pandemic, so um, you know, that was not really a full season. But last year, he had 81 points in 68 games for the Winnipeg Ice. Now, he is eligible to go back to Winnipeg. He's at the age where he would be an overager. But of course, there is actually, um, in that, the, the overage players, you can only have so many. Um, at that at, at, in the WHL, so you know Winnipeg and Minnesota have to get together and say, okay, do you have the roster spot for him if he sends if we send him back? And of course, they would make room for a guy that's had 81 points for him last season. But I think in Milne's case in particular, um, you know, you want guys to progress. And as I said, you, the AHL is a tough league to play in. 
it's a really tough league, whether you're, you know, 20 or 25, really. Um, so it's really a chance for him to, to kind of test things out. Now, that doesn't mean that they, he has to stay there all season. There's the opportunity to send him back. But I think that, you know, in, in Minnesota's case, they've got a prospect that, you know, they drafted last year in the third round. He was, you know, an overage draft that's become more common. Um, so you get to see, you know, and, and, and you get some time. And um, actually, uh, the Iowa Wild will be playing not so far from me. So I'm actually going to try and get over there and see one of their preseason games um, just to see kind of some of these guys. Because the, the Minnesota Wild obviously have a lot of good young players. But I think in Milne's case, it, it, you know, it happens a lot. When a player is ready to go to the AHL, teams are much more likely to, to keep them there than to send them back to junior. We've also seen, you know, the last couple of years, the NHL allowed teams to keep players that played junior or spent the pandemic year in the AHL. And teams like Detroit and others use that. Like Donovan Sabrengo has played multiple AHL seasons already, despite having been junior aged. I think in Milne's case, you want to test him. You want to see if he can do it. And if he can't, if it doesn't, Prove to be right. You have a backup plan. Um, so I think that that's, you know, development first for a guy like that who was a late bloomer in terms of his offensive capabilities. You get to see what you have against men. So uh, not a bad not a bad spot for him to be in and certainly not a bad spot for the Minnesota Wild to be in. All right, we've got two questions coming up uh, from Stephen. We'll get to the first one here. Uh, Steven, at Stephen39, what is the upside of Connor Geeky? How optimistic can Coyotes fans be at this point? I think, you know, the upside of Connor Geeky as uh, as a prospect is that he is going to be, you know, probably a middle six center, a guy that can be uh, a matchups player, can give you a lot of time. Um, he'll be on your power play. He's very cerebral in terms of his offense. Um, it's just a matter of for him right now, it's getting quicker. It's getting making decisions faster. It's playing at pro pace. Um, so to have him being going back to junior and getting that opportunity, I mean, he's he just wasn't ready for the pace of the NHL yet. Um, so I have high hopes for him. I think that he's you know a middle six, top you know number two center. You know that's that's where I can see him going. Um, so that's uh, that's I mean you know he's a, he's a good young player. He's got lots of time, and I think the Coyotes will will do right by him developmentally as well. And then our next one comes uh, also from at Stephen thirty nine. Arizona has 19 picks in the first three rounds of the next three drafts combined. How far out is a typical scouting staff putting together draft lists for? Well, this is a this is a tough one because I mean, like, I think teams are always looking ahead for sure. Um, and I think in a team like I, I haven't asked specifically, you know, if Arizona has anybody that's building lists, but I've talked to some teams where they said, you know, yeah, we want to, we want to know at least enough about the next draft class. So we might, we're, we're going to start making sure that our guys have notes. So when a scout goes to a game, they're going to have notes and they're, they're going to have notes pretty much on every player. Some teams will have notes on every player that played in that game, every single one. Some will have very specific goals where you say, okay, we want you to watch this guy. And, oh, can we get a couple notes about this player as well? Um, so in terms of building lists, I don't think many teams build future lists like that. They certainly are aware of the players that they need to keep track of. They're going to have those flashpoint moments like the Under-17 World Challenge, which is coming back for the first time in three years um, this year. Now it'll, it'll be in uh, Langley, BC. And that's where the top 16-year-old players in the world gather. 
Um, normally they have teams like Russia. They won't have Russia this year. They will have Sweden, Finland, um, the U.S., and, and then Canada will send um, multiple teams to that event as well. It's a great way to kind of get a look at the future of the next couple of years down the line. So teams will send scouts to that. Not, a, not every team will um, because it's resources that you can spend on focusing on the current draft. But when you do, when you're a team like Arizona and you you do have a longer term process, I think there's absolutely an emphasis on let's make sure we have good notes on these guys because you know I, I've always been an advocate for having that two year like I think if if in in my ideal scouting staff if I had unlimited resources, my scouts would follow the same class for two years and that would be you'd have. You'd have guys getting notes on 16-year-olds and then watching them progress into 17-year-olds. There's a lot you can learn about the development arc of players. I always thought, you know, I always wondered, you know, would Brandon Saad have gone? He's, he's always a player I use as an example because he came into his draft season as a top five projected pick. And he ends up going in the second round, in the middle of the second round, and ends up having a really, the, the kind of career that, you would be happy with if you got a player in the top 10 with um, multiple Stanley Cups, you know, good seasons, good two-way forward, all that, all that. And I, I just wonder, you know, if, if teams were watching him more closely the previous season, they would have seen, you know, where he's at and versus where he ended up in his draft year and he was injured and all these other different things. There are a lot of different factors at play. The one thing I will say is, though, you really don't have to do that now. You, you, you can get all the video you want from the player's previous season and go through and say, okay, well, let's watch how he progressed and see it. And then you can see it live. I mean, scouts are always going to want live views and that's what they should get. They should get live views as much as possible. But that's one where I could say, Hey, you know, this is, this is uh, get as much data as we can on these players years out and it helps. But in terms of actual building of a draft board, I don't think that there are a lot of teams that are going to spend that amount of time on that when it's so hard to build one draft board for the current season and that's a constantly evolving process so um be aware of it but don't focus don't take the focus away from the present either all right our last question of today comes from at hockey scribe and he asks what are the most important skills you or scouts look for in blue in a blue line prospect to determine if they project as offensive defensemen in the nhl that is a really good question from a hockey scribe because I think the thing is is that you have to talk about what is an offensive defenseman. I think that before we thought guys like Paul Coffey and Ray Bork and Larry Murphy were offensive defensemen where the offensive parts of their game were the most important parts. Now I think as a defenseman, if you are just defensive or just offensive, you're not going to play in the league. Versatility becomes a much more important thing. Um, I think about different guys. You know, Ryan Murphy was one of the best offensive defensemen I've ever seen in play junior hockey, and he was a top 10 draft pick, and he never really panned out in the NHL. Great AHL defenseman, but never really panned out in the NHL. Wasn't a very good defender. Had some, you know, he wasn't a big guy either, but he could score and he had skill. And I think teams tried to, you know, even see if they could move him to forward. But there are a lot of guys like that. And so the most important trait in a defenseman anymore, for me, it's not offensive or defensive, it's versatility. Versatility, being able to do it all, being able to move pucks. And I think that the, 
if we're talking about traits, most defensemen that are going to get drafted now are going to have some offensive capabilities. And offensive defensemen don't just have to put up points. It helps if they do. But I think, what are the other elements that skill helps defensemen at? A lot getting out of their zone, escaping pressure, moving pucks. All those things are important at both ends of the ice anymore. You need teams that can move pucks quickly. You need teams that can play quickly. So it's not about offensive traits or defensive traits. It's about the collective of the traits. Because, you know, I think about guys like uh, Braden Schneider, uh, who was drafted in the first round and, you know, didn't have eye-popping numbers, but he he was a really good defender. The other things that he did well, short passes, making, getting plays out, escaping the zone. Um, You know, I think his team wanted to dump pucks more. So he dumped the puck a lot, which kind of affected his data in terms of, 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 you know, did he have the offensive skill? He's not an offensive defenseman now. He's a two-way guy, much more concerted on the defensive effort. And that's okay. That's all right. He's, that's what he does. And like, he, so I think that, you know, guys like Adam Fox now as well, great numbers, excellent passer, incredible vision, great hockey sense. He's a really good defender too. And that was a knock on him. A lot of people said, I don't think he can defend at the NHL level. Well, what does he do well? He anticipates plays better than anybody. He's one of the most, he's probably one of the smartest defensemen in the NHL today. And it's because he anticipates. So watch how many odd man breaks he breaks up because he anticipates the, what, the, what the forward is going to do. Um, so to, to just nutshell it, the important things that a defenseman needs anymore is skating ability. Um, that's not the first, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the hockey sense. When you combine that, you, you got to be able to skate some. The hockey sense, the anticipation, the vision, the uh, uh, ability to absorb pressure, those different things. That all hockey sense all plays into that. Having vision to be able to you know stretch the ice or to make the right pass, to make the right read, to get things out. And then you know having good hands really helps. You look at guys like Lane Hudson from the last draft we talked about earlier. Dynamic young player, moves pucks really well. Um, his hands are very good. You know he's he's able to to evade pressure, and then he's also got deceptive skating ability. So you know those are the types of things that 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 matter most. And it all a lot of it starts with the brain. A lot of it starts with you know, the way that they think the game and anticipate the game. Um, and, you know, like one of the least important things that I'm looking at in a, in a defenseman anymore is a shot. Does the guy have a bomb from the point? That's great. That's, a, that's an added bonus. Can he do, does he, does he know when to use it? Does he know how to use it? Does he know, um, you know, when to, to look off guys? To, does he get pucks through? Is he able to see, does he have the vision to make those plays? So to me, Anymore, if you are a defenseman, you can't just be all in one basket or all in another basket. You have to be versatile. And I think that that's what we're seeing with the modern defenseman. Kale McCarr is an exceptional defender in addition to being an amazing offensive player. Quinn Hughes, underrated defender. He's not going to make – he doesn't have the strength to stop guys, but he, he, he defends from the side about as well as anybody. You might not see him turn around backwards and square up with a guy, you might see him get under him from the side, which is something he's done since he was like a kid, and he does it really well. Defensemen who know how to play the game the way that is effective for them are the defensemen that are going to continue to make it. They don't, don't force them into one box or the other. That's what I would say about the traits that I'm looking for in a defenseman for the draft. And that's about as good a place as anywhere to end today's episode. It's a great question, a lot of thought-provoking stuff. Thanks to everybody for the amazing questions that you asked. 
Huge thanks to Colt Joyce for producing today's episode and helping me through some technical difficulties at the beginning. Um, hopefully, if you're watching this on Flow Hockey, it looks a little better. I'm hoping it's going to sound a little better soon, too, as we work through a couple more technical things. But so far, it's been a lot of fun. So don't forget, you can always watch this podcast on flowhockey.tv. It's up every week. You can also download it on your podcast app of choice. Please leave a kind rating and review. It really does help us get the word out. We'll read some of your reviews and your and your comments on this site as well. Probably only if it's five stars because, you know, that's kind of what we need at this point. So please do help people help us get the word out about the podcast. But we're going to be back next week. We're going to have a lot more to talk about. We're going to continue to talk about prospects. We'll have all sorts of different content for you coming your way on flowhockey.tv. So stay with us for this season. We're only just getting started and really excited to keep things going right here on Talking Hockey Sense. So I thank you for joining me on this week's episode. We will see you next week. My name is Chris Peters. This is Talking Hockey Sense. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.